I want somebody on the other end to say, I get it, who could truly empathize. I love like Brene Brown's The Power of Empathy. Yeah, they could just sit and completely empathize with where I was coming from. Because if I can get empathy, then I can figure out steps to change it through like a mentorship or a modeling from somebody else. But if somebody just says, hey, take four deep breaths and walk away. Well, I take it four deep breaths. I'm walking away. I'm coming back more steam than I started. Right. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies for his help in producing this episode. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers and Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb, if you want to really get to understand ADHD and how it affects people. Their tips and stories are amazing and incredibly useful. If you haven't had a chance to check out the ADHD Essentials Facebook community, I highly recommend it. There's all sorts of useful resources and great people to connect with. And also, if you don't mind, if you're already in the holiday spirit, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review on iTunes or your podcast player of choice. It helps others find the ADHD Essentials podcast, and that helps me help more people. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Keith Gellhorn. Keith is the founder and CEO of Advocacy, that's A-D-D-V-O-C-A-C-Y, where he provides one-on-one and group coaching, as well as training for neurodiverse youth and adults struggling with executive function. In today's episode, Keith shares his story. It's a story filled with struggle, heartache, mental health challenges, and ultimately, growth and success. Keith uses his story to explore topics ranging from anger to adverse childhood experiences, trauma, and the power of resilience, personal development, ADHD coaching, and asking for help. All right, let's get rolling. My name is Keith Gellhor. I'm the founder and chief empowerment officer at Advocacy. And what we do is we coach neurodiverse youth and adults who live with ADHD, learning disabilities, autism. Uh, anxiety, and any co-occurring condition that impacts executive functioning. In addition to that, we provide peer-led professional development training for educators, employers, and frontline workers on how to maximize the productivity of this neurodiverse demographic. Sounds like you're at the vanguard of mental health and, and executive function and ADHD challenges. Yes. What got you into working with people who have ADHD? What, what brought you down this road? I'm from British Columbia originally. I currently live in Nova Scotia. I was adopted at birth into a family of high achievers. So my dad's accountant, my mom's a nurse, and my sister actually has a PhD in behavioral genetics rooted in trying to figure out why she turned out the way she did and I turned out the way I did given the exact same upbringing. So my sister was a kind of straight-A student, all-star athletic and academic. 
she lives down in Colorado, actually, at this point and works for a big uh, pharmaceutical research company. Uh, and then there was me. And so I started struggling as early as I can remember in school with uh, handwriting. My math was terrible. I was constantly getting in trouble. I actually got expelled in grade primary, which is the same as kindergarten. I know which one you guys use, but I got expelled for uh, peeing on the floor instead of in the urinal of all things, right? That, that kind of set the tone for how my life went from then on out. So I struggled all the way through school. By the time I got to junior high, I basically had wiped out any kind of self-confidence I had. Uh, went from a really boisterous kid to really introverted. All of my report cards were straight C's and D's. I spent every summer in summer school. And then in grade 10, I actually worked at a summer camp uh, helping kids with autism and Down syndrome. Realized after doing that for a week, I made $50 a week during that, but realized that I needed to be in the helping field. So I went into high school. I took a class on human services but all my friends were making fun of me because it was me and 30 women. I thought I hit the jackpot. They they uh, were like, hey, you should be a firefighter or something like that. Because uh, I'm a big guy. I'm six, seven in high school. I was about 200 pounds. And uh, for firefighting, I had to take a science and looked on the board. Could have been written not Chinese for all I cared. Walked right back out. And the end of the year rolls around and I get called into the principal's office. And he's going through these exams. And I said, well, I'm going to fail. And he said, well, Keith, given your performance here at this school, it doesn't matter what you do in life, you're always going to be a failure. And I lived like that for about 17 years. So I went out to college. I spent six years to get two years worth of my courses done. At the end of that six years, I had around 70% average or so. Tried to get into university for school social work. Uh, they turned me away at the door and said, dude, you're dreaming. You're never going to succeed in academia. I said, suggest you go get a trade or something. Plumbers make good money. Again, the, the lifestyle I grew up in was, uh, I thought that was like the bottom of the barrel, which was ironic because I worked in the trades <laughs> the entire time. But uh, anyways, so off I went, dejected, gave up on school. At that same time, I actually met my birth parents. So I met my birth dad and my mom and started to understand that nature versus nurture thing. Uh, my dad in particular definitely would have likely have been diagnosed with ADHD, although we didn't know that at the time. You know, he was kind of all over the place, and which was kind of similar to how I felt. Anyways, that happened when I was 24. By the time I was 28, then I started to figure out, hey, you should get your life together, man, and, and get, a, get a good job. Because uh, the most I made up to that point was $18 an hour. I was unemployed and I was on a trades related program, sent out my resume to 100 places. First company wrote me back, plumbing company. So I said, well, guess I'm destined to do this now <laughs> and uh, did my schooling for that. In my third year, I lost my dad, my birth dad to uh, suicide. And after he died, I was started, you know, I was asking them about some family history and medical history. And I found out that my family is absolutely riddled with mental health challenges. So his brothers got bipolar and uh, PTSD because he found them. Uh, the mom, his mom or my grandma has a major depressive disorder. My grandma on the other side died in a mental institution due to depression. And uh, so I all of a sudden, one shot, I get all this information. And finished my tickets, moved up from Vancouver up to a place called Kelowna, was promised five years worth of work. 
Uh, that was in 2007, and then 2008 hit. So the economic downturn hit. Our company went from 77 people to four in six months, and I was number five that was in the company. So I I had a massive mental health breakdown. I still remember it, sitting in the middle of my living room floor, bawling my eyes out, saying, well, like, what the heck am I going to do? I owned a house and a bunch of cars. I was engaged and all this stuff. And so I went into the mental health system and I got diagnosed right off the bat with anxiety and depression, which as a male and as the environment that I grew up with, guys don't have problems. So I was like, ah, it's nothing to do with me, 100% to do with the situation, right? And then I was describing a series of symptoms, uh, which I knew is flash anger, which is now called intermittent explosive disorder. And what would happen to me is basically from teenagehood up until that point, I would go from zero to 100, yelling, screaming, punching walls, rove raging. And as soon as I go up, I come right back down. It was like nothing ever happened. And I, but I didn't know why I did it. And I'd taken anger management a couple of times. And I was like, man, I'm not an angry person. I don't understand why I do this. And they gave me a book, very classic ADHD book called uh, You Mean I'm Not Stupid, Lazy, or Crazy with Peggy Raimondo. I don't know if you remember that one. There was a, a paragraph that explained this flash anger to a T. And I'm like, holy crow, this is totally me. Then I started reading more and more and more. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I have this ADHD. And I was like 34, right? Like a lot of us who get diagnosed late. So following that, I did uh, two and a half years of weekly cognitive behavioral therapy. I tried uh, antidepressants and Concerta. And what I found with the medication, the best description, I'm, I'm sure people talked about this before, is that it gave me glasses so I could see, but I still didn't know where I was going. And the therapy was great in the sense where it helped me understand why I felt and was doing the things that I was doing and had all those anger management problems and all that stuff, but it, it didn't get me anywhere. And so I was, I kept asking them, I said, I need somebody who can help get me from A to B. I have goals and dreams and things that I want to accomplish. And uh, I was looking all over, I couldn't find it. Finally, in 2010, I found, I, I actually had lost my job in 2010 to a back injury and self-disclosing that I had ADHD. Basically what I used to do is I take the plans home, color code them all, do schematic drawings up, like 3D drawings for my crew and hand them off. And the, the owners are like, what the heck are you doing that for? We're not paying you all this overtime to do it. And I said, I'm, never, I'm not charging you anything. It's just an easier way for me to explain what I want to say without getting interrupted, right? Anyways, it ended up costing me my job. Because you went above and beyond? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I went above and beyond. All of my stuff, I, I'm a perfectionist. I didn't realize I was a perfectionist. I thought I was a procrastinator, but I'm a total perfectionist. And my stuff would be bang on. It would just take me like, so say you got four days to do a job, it would take me five. And all they could focus on was taking the five. But if I did it in five days, it would be perfect. You never have to dig anything up. There is no challenges, you know? Anyways, it cost me my job. And a month later, I met a coach for the first time named Pete Quilly. And uh, anyways, he was running a ADHD support group. I would say he's like the godfather of ADHD in Canada for his advocacy work. And I went down to his group and met people who kind of felt natural like I did. Asked him what he did. He told me he was a coach. And the first thing he says, he's like, man, I was like, you know, tell me all about it. I was all excited. And he's like, listen, man, you don't want to get into it. People don't show up. They don't pay their bills, which is partly true. <laughs> but it's also like, 
uh, wasn't the motivation I was looking for. And I was like, I could totally do this. So I, at that point, so that's in 2010, I looked in the States, there was like, uh, I don't know, say a thousand coaches down there in Canada at the time, there was only 50 East of Ontario. There were none. And I did the uh, ADD. I looked into it and found the ADD coach Academy. That was the first school I went to. And also I did uh, JST coaching. So Jody sleeper triplet coaching and training. Both of those were on East coast time. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, I can't be the plumber turned <laughs> coach. Right. So I was like, I got to go back to school. So I went back, I moved out to Nova Scotia. I went back to school and studied uh, disability supports and services with the goal of becoming a clinical social worker. Four months into moving out here, I actually got my first client through one of the biggest universities here. It's called Dalhousie University. It was a student who had basically tried counseling, tried tutoring, the learning strategies, everything else, demanded an ADHD coach. And nobody had heard of such a thing out here. Happened to land on my tiny little school in Truro, Nova Scotia, the Nova Scotia Community College. Said, he's here. Like at that time, I was running these uh, ADHD support groups called the ADD Empowerment Hour. Let's try them out. And she had a definitive goal. She needed to get from uh, 73% to 85% in six weeks. Six weeks later, she got 87%, gets into veterinary school. Next year, they're like, how many people do you want? I said, I'll take 10 students, but give me all your like low-hanging fruit guys because I had massive imposter syndrome. So all the, you know, angry, you know, 60s student that you don't expect to do well, give me those guys and I'll see what I can do. And so my, my thought process was like, you know, if they fail, well, who cares, right? They're the low-hanging fruit. But if they pass, golden ticket. So long story short, not only did they all pass, the lowest mark any of them had was a 75 we got them about $20,000 in scholarships. They were volunteering with me, uh, getting actively involved in the community. By my fourth semester of NSCC, I got permission to coach at every post-secondary institution in Nova Scotia. I won Entrepreneur of the Year for this idea, graduated with honors, went off to university, ended up coaching 26 people a week the following year. Then I was up to 40 people a week, burnt out, obviously, hired a girl that I went to school with to come in and help then we doubled the business and uh i don't know a whole bunch of other stuff happened since then but that's that's the long, <laughs> the long story of it. that's awesome and i want to point out because you're on here to talk about adverse childhood experiences right that's that's kind of the plan here yeah as we're talking i'm sort of imagining my listeners right and kind of what are they hearing potentially yeah and i'm i'm picturing the parent whose kid is struggling and whose kid maybe has some explosive anger and whose kid is getting in trouble yeah. And I, I hope that that parent is hearing your story and going, oh, man, that sounds like my kid. Oh, man, that sounds like my kid. And then as that story progresses, I hope they started going, oh, wait, no, he's like a successful plumber and he's doing it right. And it's not his fault. The economy fell apart like that's. Yeah. But he navigated that and he handled that and he moved on and he, he reinvented himself and he's still a successful person, despite all the struggles that you went through up through high school, including a principal saying to you that you're never going to be a successful person. You kind of proved that guy wrong. Yeah. And that's a big part of that ACEs, that adverse childhood experiences, the power of resilience. Because you certainly had some. Clearly in your life, you've had a number of adverse childhood experiences and you've used them to gain resilience and, and build some strength as opposed to being broken by them. So let's start playing with that. 
Sure. Walk us through what are adverse childhood experiences? What does it have to do with resilience? What does it have to do with neurodiversity? So looking at adverse childhood experiences basically breaks down into three categories. One is around abuse. So if you've experienced any physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Another one is uh, related around your, just your experience coming up as a, uh, in the, like the family unit. Are your parents still together? Are they divorced? Anybody ever been to prison? Anything like that? And then the last one is rooted around trauma. Let me just talk for the first one around the, the abuse side of things. So wouldn't have said back in the day that I experienced abuse per se. However, I was constantly being told, don't do this. Don't touch that. You're doing this wrong. My parents even gave me a nickname. Well, I shouldn't say my parents, my dad gave me a nickname of Keith, I'm going to Gellhorn. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And, and it was all these ideas that were just constantly ripping through my, my head. And what I had troubles with is actually turning them into ideas because I had problems with processing. That just, that was my jam, right? So on that end of things, my dad had his own company. He worked out of the house. He worked 20 hours a day. And even though he was present in my life and my parents are still together, he wasn't emotionally available. And any emotions that I experienced, and most of my emotion, because I didn't know how to express it, because he also had some anger management problems, to put it mildly, any of the emotions that I ever had would come out as this anger. And then that anger would ignite his anger, and him and I would just go at it. So he, he used to, uh, you know, was constantly just screaming at me for everything I was doing wrong, never really praised me like he'd come out to my soccer games and he'd be screaming at the coaches and screaming at me and like come on you basically just swearing at everybody and taking his frustration out that way so that's the way I was kind of socialized and basically how you develop your values and your your personality and everything basically happens in that developmental stage of the ages between like four and ten you kind of get to know who you are and if you're in an environment where you're constantly yelled at criticized teachers screaming at you for not writing, you know, not writing effectively and everything else, you start to kind of go inwards. And that's exactly what I did. I just started to go inwards. And by the time I was a teenager, my self-esteem was so annihilated that I couldn't function. And the only emotion that I did have, to be honest, was neutral or kill people. <laughs> I shouldn't say kill people, but but just pure fierce anger. And I was just angry at the world, right? Because it didn't matter what I did, I couldn't get ahead. And so much of that is toxic masculinity is this idea that like, yes, yeah, the idea that like men aren't allowed to have emotions. And especially men aren't allowed to have negative emotions. Because really, men are not allowed to be vulnerable. That's what it boils down to, right? Yep. All of our negative emotions make us vulnerable and make us feel vulnerable at least, except for anger, because my anger makes you feel vulnerable. It doesn't make me feel vulnerable. So if I feel rejected or lonely or guilty or shameful, I'm going to turn that outward and attack someone else. Is that a piece of what's happening for you? Yeah, no, that's exactly what it was. And it was also, and I hope families hear this. So in the family union, one thing that will happen is that a lot of this anger will come out in the family, right? So there'll be 
you know, you ask your teenager, go clean the dishwasher or whatever, and then he forgets. And then the parents just like, you know, screaming at him, I told you to go do the dishwasher, right? And it, it more than likely, well, first of all, it's not of interest to them, right? So, but more than likely just forgot. It wasn't like they're intentionally trying to do you wrong. It's just they forget. And hearing constantly what you've done wrong ultimately will damage you in the years ahead. There's there's research out there. I don't know if you've seen this before. This is where the wall of awful comes from, but keep going. Sorry. Yeah. So basically that, that we will have been told, no, don't do that. Don't touch that and so forth. Like 200,000 times more than our peers. So how do you expect us to grow up into confident, uh, assertive young men and women as we grow up? If that's all we've heard is like, what we're doing wrong on a consistent basis. So that part of my life caused me a ton of pain. And what it did was like, when I got out into the world, basically, I, my dad kicked me out of the house because of my first semester in college, I came back with one B and I failed two courses. You're like, I saved up all this money for you to go to school. You didn't even try it. I was like, man, I was trying, man. It's so hard, right? I didn't have any of my executive function skills. I was the most disorganized person in the world didn't know how to study, didn't know how to do much anything, you know, but I just kept, it, it didn't matter how many steps forward I tried to take, something would rip me down. Yeah. And when it was coming from the family, that was absolutely freaking painful. It sounds like, like it's interesting, right? Cause you started by saying, well, I, I didn't suffer abuse, but then you're kind of like, but I got thrown out of the house and my dad got really mad at me and it was explosive. And yeah. And so, Maybe a little bit of both, right? Like maybe there is some abuse there, maybe not intentional, maybe not with malice, but still there, that uncertainty at least in terms of where is it safe for me to step? Am I going to be able to be effective? That's exactly right. So from the safety perspective, I did not feel safe at home. And when I left home, I was like, screw you, I'm going out on my own. And when I left home, again, not knowing how to deal with emotions, because that's the only way it came across. When he got mad, he yelled and screamed and threw stuff and belted me and all this stuff. And, uh, and then when I got mad, I did the same thing, right? So, so what had happened with me was like, like I said, I became a road rager to the nth degree. I drive people right off the road. The last incident I remember ever having was... I don't know if you remember back in the day, they don't use much anymore, but that those steering wheel locks, uh, the people used to put on their cars. Yep. So a guy cut me off in traffic and I jumped out of the car and he jumped out of the car and the guy was about 60 years old and he swung one of those things at me and it ratcheted out within about an inch of my face. I go back into my car and I grab mine and I'm, and I'm holding it. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, what are you doing, Keith? You don't understand, like, if if I were to take one swing and knock this, I probably would have killed the guy, to be honest. And that was, like, the last time I was like, I need some help. I need to deal with this and figure out how to how to start handling my emotions. That was in my mid-20s, where I finally was like, okay, enough of this. I'm going to go into anger management. And I did it twice, actually. Now, ironically, I'm certified to teach it. So, so but I do it from a, from a peer perspective. But... It sounds like you've become the person you needed. Yes, it's exactly what it was. I was searching my entire life for somebody like me. You know, when I was a kid, my parents put me in with a psychiatrist. And I remember this clear as day, sitting in there behind. So he's sitting behind a desk. He's got all his diplomas or 
you know, certifications up on the wall and he's sitting behind his big desk and he's like, Keith, I want you to tell me, uh, you know, draw me a, a couple pictures. And I was like, okay, of what? He's like, well, draw me a picture of your parents like they were animals. I'm like, okay, well, I'm draw a picture of a crab because my dad's crabby and a draft because my mom's tall. Like, what does this have to do with anything, right? What I wanted to talk to was somebody who could relate to me from that peer perspective. And when I tell them about the grievances and challenges and all the stuff that I'm having, I want somebody on the other end to say, I get it, who could truly empathize. I love like Brene Brown's The Power of Empathy. Have you ever seen that little video? I have. Yeah, they could just sit and completely empathize with where I was coming from. Because if I can get empathy, then I can figure out steps to change it through like a mentorship or a modeling from somebody else. But if somebody just says, hey, take four deep breaths and walk away. Well, I take it four deep breaths. I'm walking away. I'm coming back more steam than I started. Right. So, <laughs> so that was that. Yeah. Circling back to the adverse childhood experiences, right? We've talked about sort of family of origin stuff. Yeah. What's next? So we started, started about abuse. The second one would be around neglect. Um, so there's either physical neglect or emotional ne neglect. So again, circling back to how this would have impacted me, like I said, my dad lived in the home. They're still married. My parents have been married for 51 years, but uh, my dad chose to spend the bulk of his time in the office. He worked like 20 hours a day, right? From 1986 on, that was him. So it was all, all the socialization, I guess, I got from basically 12 years old and up when you really, really need it the most came from my mom, who was pretty patient, and my sister, who just kind of didn't like me, <laughs> right, to put it mildly. And uh, so anyways, I just felt essentially neglected, right? Like, I remember uh, my parents' friends would phone the house and they're like, you know, how's the kids doing? And they're like, oh, well, Heather just made the Olympic team. Heather just got into a full-ride athletic academic scholarship down in the States. How's Keith doing? Well, <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's working at Sears selling paint, the end, right? And, and it was just whether it wasn't intentional or not. Like, I, to be honest, I love my parents to death now that I've rectified some of this stuff. But it wasn't intentional on their part. But there was just, there was definitely a division between myself and my sibling, which led me to constantly like comparing myself with other people, always feeling like I wasn't good enough, never having the confidence to really go on and take on anything kind of outside of the realm of comfort. And uh, yeah, it just really, it was really challenging. Yeah. It sounds it. Was your sister actually on the Olympic team? She didn't make it because she had a back injury, but she was shortlisted for it. Four of her teammate members make it, made it. But she she went to uh, Leola Marymount uh, down in California, and also University of Boulder. So I can, I mean, I can see that gap right between. Yep. My sister legitimately got onto the Olympic team, even if she didn't actually do anything on it, and she got a full ride scholarship in this in a university in the United States. Yep. And you're working the paint department of Sears. Yep. <laughs> that's really hard. Like that, that's a difficult position to be in. That was really hard. And, and you'll find that often with, with a lot of these kids that are, are out there. If you, and I, I coach a lot of kids. I'm, I don't know if you work, 
don't work with kids. I, I more work with uh, 16 and up is kind of my jam, high school and up. But very often there's like a lot of pressure come from the parents. Like the only option you have is to go to university. Man, if I knew that I could go into a trade when I was 18 and come out and make 30 bucks an hour at 22 years old, I would have been doing that all day long, right? But that was never an option, right? It's like you go to university or, or, or that's it. One of the other things that had happened too was in grade nine, my parents thought that the reason why I was failing all my exams was because the uh, provincials for the, the soccer and the baseball team that I was on was the week before exams. So then in grade nine, they're like, well, we're pulling you out of sports. And I was like, what? <laughs> right? Like, it's got nothing to do with that. I was actually something that was actually helping me. But yeah, they, they yanked me out and I never participated in a team sport again until I was uh, maybe four or five years ago. I joined a curling team. <laughs> that was it. All of these things just kind of impacted me in a, in a negative way. And circling back to that toxic masculinity stuff, and I promise I won't beat this horse too much. No, no, of course. Uh, I like talking about it. A piece of that is like, you have to be a king, right? Like that's be a man, be a king kind of thing. And it sounds like your family was looking at the philosopher king role. Go to school, be smart. That's how you become a king. Yeah. Not so much respect for the warrior king aspect, which is usually sports, because it's not like you can go out and conquer a town or something right now. So it's usually that warrior king stuff comes through sports. But a plumber, a person working in the trades, they work for the king. They're servants. And so when you've got that toxic masculinity perspective, that's part of why the blue collar jobs are not respected as much as they should be, often even by the people who are doing them. No, totally. I got a buddy who's a contractor, right? He he does amazing work. We have the most beautiful bathroom because he came in and it's beautiful. Like he did an amazing job. He did an amazing job on our deck. But he and I will talk about stuff, especially early on when we first started to get to know each other. He would talk about how he wasn't as smart as me and he didn't know as much stuff and because I'd been the... I have two master's degrees and I, the work that I do is like knowledge work. That's where I live professionally. And it's taken a while for me to convince him because my view is like, I want people to respect my expertise, king or no king. I don't care. I want you to respect my expertise. And if I'm expecting that of other people, I damn well better be respecting the expertise of the people around me. Exactly. And so I talked to him about that. I'm like, you do things I can't do. Like he can look at a board and say, that board is plumb. That board is not plumb. It's this long. It's warped. It's not warped. I can't do that. I can't look at stuff and know how big it is and whether or not it's warped and look at a screw and or a bolt and know what size lug nut or what size wrench I need to make that thing turn. I don't have those skills. I don't have that expertise. And I'm not about to belittle it. Like That's amazing. And you built the world. There's nothing wrong with the trades. And it's frustrating to hear the view of the sort of that toxic masculinity angle of the philosopher king of carpentry plumbing is not good enough. No, ironically, too, it's so, so funny because when I came out of, well, I only went to community college when I started my coaching business. And I was coaching university students from first year right through PhD. And I would have a lot of like psychologists, uh, the learning strategists at the universities really like jumping down my throat in terms of my qualifications, right? 
well, what makes you qualified to do that? I was like, well, what makes me qualified is I can get results. <laughs> you, <laughs> right? Back in the day, had I been diagnosed earlier, I definitely would have been diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. So if you tell me what to do, I will prove a point <laughs> until you understand that, yes, I'm capable of doing it. I may not love being in school, but it doesn't mean I can't acquire skills. So what I used to do actually was like, you know, when I had all the PhDs in the room, because I've done lots of pitches and stuff over the years, I had a tech company for a couple of years, and that's where I saw it the most. Um, I was part of this uh, organization called BioNova for basically health tech companies. So that's what they saw. My old tech startup was called AdTechs. And, uh, you know, everybody's up there, like the guy beside me has got the next cure for cancer. And they're like, like, who are you? And I was like, well, I have a PhD too in plumbing, heating, and drainage, right? <laughs> and uh, how many of you guys have that? None. I, I equate all the experiences that I've had and the, the fact, I probably had about 50 different jobs by the time I was 25. I remember I accepted five jobs in a week. So getting the job, that initial high of getting it, I could always get it. But then once it came to execute it, I'm like, uh, what do I do now, <laughs> right? Yep. So let's let's circle back on on the adverse childhood experiences again. We've talked about neglect. We've talked about abuse. What's what's next? Yeah. So the last part of that is uh, household dysfunction. And there's basically five categories that fall in there. So the first one's mental health. The other one is incarceration of a relative, a mother being treated violently, uh, substance abuse or divorce. In this particular category, personally, other than the mental illness part, because I believe my dad also suffers from something. We don't quite know what. I think he might be a, potentially on the spectrum because he has a very hard time uh, processing emotions. Yeah, for me personally, uh, most of this stuff didn't impact me, but where it does impact is when I'm dealing with clients. So, you know, a lot of people will say, well, he can't pay attention. He can't focus. He, he's distracted constantly and all this stuff. Because I'm not a clinician, I try not to go down the clinical path when I'm doing my coaching, but I can go down this path. And I only learned about ACEs when I learned about uh, neurodiversity. It was probably about five years ago. You know, I, I knew, I'd studied about trauma in general. Usually when you think trauma, you think something like massively substantial and you don't take into consideration all these other categories. So anyways, I started running these ACEs quizzes with a lot of my clients. And what I found was about 80%, 80-90% of us had something like this going on. So then it started to become questioning. And that's what I like to do and read. <laughs> it's like questioning, like the chicken and the egg. Is it ADHD or could it be trauma or could it be a combination of the two? And if it is a combination of the two, medication's not going to fix that. Therapy can work for cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what kind of digs into it. But having a true peer conversation about, I'll give you an example. I've got this client right now. She's uh, 27 years old. Up until she was about 20, she uh, was kind of goody two-shoes, right? Her mom was a massive, started off with the helicopter parents. Now we call them drone parents. But to say she was an enabler, and uh, in a codependent relationship is the understatement of the century. So anyway, so this girl gets herself into trouble, right? Gets into drugs, alcohol, gets in a bad situation or whatever, realizes she's in a bad situation about two years ago, cleans herself up, goes through rehab, comes back out. 
and now is trying to take on her life as a 27 year old woman. However, so the mom was the one that reached out to me to help her help her daughter. I was like, okay, well, that's great. And I told her, I was like, when we get started, the coaching relationship is between me and my daughter, not with you. But this mom couldn't get it out of her freaking head. Right? And still to this day, you know, every day I get these four and a half page emails about like, oh my God, like, are you going to, you know, she's, she's outdating and she shouldn't be doing that. She's like, she's not ready to get a job. She's not ready to do this. And so you start looking at like, who's the issue here, right? Like within a day, I realized, yes, the daughter has some challenges and we have to work through those challenges and help her move forward. But the person that's holding her back is her freaking family. They're, you know, fighting back and forth. The husband had left the, the wife and there's all this tension and there's this constant micromanaging and everything else. And then I, I come back and I said to her, I said, let's run this ACEs stuff with you. How many of these things do you relate to? She's like nine out of 10. <laughs> right? And I said, well, this, this needs to be dealt with. And like I said, from a coaching perspective, I don't go beyond my boundaries. And one of the things that, that I've been able to do up here in Canada, which I don't know any other coach has done, 95% of my coaching is all funded through government agencies. So I hooked her up with one of the agencies that I know. And I said, you know, I said, have you got any counseling or anything? She's like, no, I can't afford it. And I said, well, we're going to find you some funding so you can get connected. And at the same point, I said to the mom too, <laughs> like, you need your own help too. So we got her funding too to, to get some uh, some support, right? And then work it as, as a family unit, yeah. That's great. What have we not hit on yet for the ACEs? We've done abuse, neglect. We've done family of origin. I'll touch on how those three can impact everything else. So you basically have abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. If you experience more than one of those, there's a good, when they say four or more, there's a very good likelihood that you're going to experience further challenges down the line. This is the result that can come from it. So it can, two things will come, either a behavioral result or physical or mental health. So on the behavioral side of things, there can be like loss or lack of physical activity. So obesity problems, overeating, undereating, that kind of thing. Smoking, alcoholism, drug abuse, missed work, anything like that. Those are the results of experiencing that sort of a trauma. And then on the physical side of things, and I can speak to a bunch of these that have uh, hit me. So uh, the severe obesity, I wouldn't say I'm severely obese, but I've definitely had, when I ran into emotions and I didn't know what to do with them, I just shoved my face with sugar because sugar is my little dopamine hit, right? Like I'll give you an example. Last year, my dad was out because I went through some depression and uh, he was trying to get me to go out for a walk. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing it. I'm going back to bed. And, uh, and he's like, you know what, you keep living that, this lifestyle, you're going to be dead in 10 years. And then he got me to write a will <laughs> with them at the same time. I was like, man, you know, you're trying to be helpful, but like, this is not good. <laughs> like, now I really want a cupcake. Exactly. Exactly. Go no, up to the cupcakes. Essentially. Uh, you have suicidal ideations. I, I fully admit that over the years I've had a bunch of them. Last year, I ran into a, a situation where I really trusted somebody to come in and help my company who wanted to take the company to a big level. We hired like seven staff. I had overhead of about 30 grand a month. 
he took out this huge loan and then he bailed, <laughs> right? He left me $150,000 in the hole and bailed. He said it was too stressful for work with me. I hit a, a wickedly bad depression. I just have suicidal uh, tendencies, but or ideation, I shouldn't say tendencies because I never actually did anything about it. But but what I did, and coming back to this ACEs thing, is what I do is like surround myself with positive people that are moving forward. That's one of the things that, that a lot of people do is when they get in these situations and those emotions start coming, they turtle, right? They just go inwards. They don't want to talk to anybody, do anything. They don't want to get outside the house. Typically known as depression. I call it like turtling. What I've done to make my life more enriched at this point is I reach out to people who are at the same level or better than I am. And what I did for the first 35 years of my life was because I felt, I never felt happy and I never felt sad. I kind of just lived in this gray fog for the bulk of my life. And I'd always surround myself with other people in that gray fog. So one piece of advice, if I could ever give to somebody is like, regardless of how you feel, if you're feeling down and you look around at the people that you're hanging out with and they're all in the same place. And if you want to get out of that, you can't get out of that with those same people. You have to find people that are, have figured it out. Like, like if you talk about from this peer perspective, you know, people that are further ahead in that same journey that you are on and listen to the fact that they, they're helping you to veer you into a different curve. And so I look around at my friendship base now, and it's just full of like the most amazing inspirational people. A lot of us have had these past traumas, but we've all kind of built on that resiliency factor and moved ourselves forward. And that's awesome, sort of developing that resiliency. That's critical here. And that being said, just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? There are a lot of us out there. I'm Brandon, you're one. I know I am. We've got lots of people in our network that can help people out. Reach out. Reach out and talk to people that have kind of been down that road, have had those tough times in their, their lives, figured out ways to get over it, and figure out ways to, to move forward and learn from those people. I always thought that asking for help was a sign of weakness. That was always the way. And uh, it's the complete opposite. If you ask for help and learn something from it, you can kind of push yourself ahead. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.